All right. Why don't you open the book of Haggai chapter 2, please. Haggai chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 9. And the message entitled, The Greater Glory of the Temple. God has uh, confronted, as you know, the people for their apathetic indifference to build that Lord's house. Well, yet building their own luxurious houses, and they repented in chapter 1. Now God encouraged the remnant in the work of the temple, which unfolds for us in a a threefold movement here. Let me read verse 1 through 9 of chapter 2. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who was left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now in comparison with it? Is it not in your eyes as nothing? Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, son of Jezedek, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts, according to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear, for thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land. And I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. The encouragement to the remnant. For the work, the temple that they now are going to be involved in unfolds for us in the threefold movement. First, we have the directive regarding the proclamation in verse 1 and 2. Secondly, we have the perspective regarding the exhortation in verse 3 to 5. And thirdly, the perceptive regarding the revelation, verses 6 to 9. He begins with a directive regarding the proclamation. Almost like we saw in our first message. Haggai, notice, received a second prophecy here in the seventh month of the 21st day of the month. So Haggai, once again, dated his prophecy by the reign of a Gentile king. The king of Persia, Darius Hystaspasis, 521 to 486, as we said, B.C. Same as chapter 1, verse 1. Don't confuse him with the Darius of Daniel. Hold different one back further back. Now, the seventh month, as you know, in the Jewish calendar is um, the uh, uh, a holy month. Uh, Severed. There's so many going on. You have the the, the new moons, so October the first, the Feast of Trumpets. You have Yom Kippur uh, on the tenth. You have the Feast of Tabernacle, fifteenth and twenty second. There's a, it, it, a lot's happening that month, and um, this is according to the Jewish calendar, October. That's going on here. It begins with the first month of the religious calendar, which is April. And this is the 21st day. And uh, the year again, as we mentioned, is 520 B.C. A total of four prophetic messages as you move through these two chapters um, are recorded that were delivered by Haggai the prophet from September to December of 520 B.C. The first one was September 1st, second here October 21st, the third is December 24th, and the fourth again December 24th. 
In the second one, this is one month and two days after the first one. And Zechariah begins his prophecies in this month also when we get there in Zechariah chapter 1 verse 1. Now notice Haggai again receives this message from God. It's important that we understand that these are not just the words of men. It says the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying. So the divine origin is important in the second revelation indicative by the words, the word of the Lord, just like the first one. It's important because today there are many people who flaw the Bible and they believe that the Bible has errors, both in Christian colleges as well as seminaries. And they've given up the inerrancy of the scriptures, many churches. And um, what's interesting here, this is all Old Testament we're talking about here. Jesus never found one prophecy. He found no error. He believed in the prophecy. He believed in the law and everything. So I'll go with Jesus. And if you want to go with the PhDs, you're, you're more than welcome to. But I'll go with Jesus. Um, over 3,800 times we find phrases in the Old Testament such as, Thus saith the Lord, the word of the Lord came to me. The Lord said, Write. The Spirit of the Lord came upon me. I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. And we can go on and on and on. To indicate it was God speaking directly to the people through the instrument of a prophet. Now, notice the name Lord, all capital letters. Again, it indicates the covenant God, Yahweh. He delivered them from Egypt. He uh, made a covenant of blood with them there at Mount Sinai. He took them to himself in a marriage covenant. And that's why he had chastened them and put them away for unfaithfulness as an unfaithful wife in captivity. The recipients of this revelation, um, again, the prophet, like other prophets, Haggai. And his name, as we said, means festive or feast. And perhaps he was born uh, during those feasts. And certainly all those prophecies are declared around this time. Now... The title gets indicative of being just a vessel of God, the one who is being the channel by which he communicates God's mind, God's will. He's the mouthpiece, the instrument. And yet there's always a danger that we get caught up with the man, with the person, and yet it's God who's doing the work. This is the flaw and the weakness of all of us as human beings. Sometimes God uses people and uses them tremendously, and then sometimes they get off. And sometimes people get their eyes on the man and the movement or the church or whatever rather than on God himself. And this is nothing new. This happens every generation. Now, he's called a prophet five times, we said. Chapter 1, verse 1 through 3 and 12. And chapter 2, verse 1 and 10. And so he stands in a long line of prophets such as Isaiah, Jeremiah, and all these men that really were uh, not even prophets in the line of prophets, many of them remember that um, Amos, um, he was rebuked by the northern kingdom, told him to get away. And he said, I was a sheep breeder. I was a, fig, a fruit picker. What did he tell me to leave? God called me. And God did that to call back his people when the kings and the priests and all the people got so corrupted that he would raise up people to prophesy. And many of them were rejected. Some were stoned and, you know, but they spoke the word faithfully. Now look at verse 2. Haggai was to declare the prophetic message to three individuals. Um, the first one was to the first two, and we're going to have one added one. Uh, the first is Zerubbabel. Speak to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah. And again, as we say, Zerubbabel um, means sown in Babylon. So without doubt, he was born in the Babylonian captivity. 
in the lineage of the Rubabel, again, the son of Sheltiel, um, which means I have asked of God, um, the books of Ezra, a book of Nehemiah, a good cross-references and supplementary material, as we said. And the genealogy records Padiah as his father, Sheltiel, his uncle, perhaps indicating, as we said, that uh, Levitical marriage when uh, uh, a man would not have any seed and he would die without it. Then his brother was to marry the wife and have a son by her. And the first son would be named after the dead brother. And so this way his name would not be blotted out. So therefore he would be actually the father and the uncle at the same time. It's interesting. The book of Boaz gives you that kind of thing. But he was further removed. But he picked up that, that um, family responsibility. Um, Zerubbabel was the grandson of Jehoiakim, as we said. And um, his name was Coniah. And that's where you tie in the livered um, marriage because um, uh, he was prophesied to be childless uh, on the throne and Matthew picks that up too that's why he goes through Nathan rather than Solomon's um, uh, son um, through him he goes through Nathan and so he makes that jump that way now Zerubbabel is the governor and he's responsible for the oversight of all the work and everything that's going on and governors are very important uh, governors oversee the people, the state, the, uh, the region, so that the people can enjoy what they need and they can be protected. And certainly he is a, a very important person here, anointed by Cyrus, um, or I'm sorry, appointed by Cyrus, anointed by God. But it was all God working, and that came up again in 537 B.C., the book of Ezra confirms this. Now, um, the second one is Joshua. And he's a high priest. So you have the line of the king, David, through Zerubbabel. Now you have the line of Aaron here. Um, Joshua, again, means Yahweh's salvation. Uh, the Hebrew name Joshua, translated to the Greek as uh, Jesus. So Yahweh's salvation is what he means. And he's the son of uh, Jehozadak, which means Yahweh is righteous. And so anytime you have a name and the Yah is there, it's related to God, Yahweh. And you have beautiful names that are affiliated and associated with God in the Hebrew culture in many different ways or righteousness or stuff like that. Um, you know, um, they didn't name their, their kids uh, Zoe, Bowie or, you know, something like that. You know, um, they, they, they looked upon God and they saw everything in the hands of God and they made those uh, connections. Um, he is the grandson of Hilkiah. The high priest, so again, his descended line is of the family of Aaron. He's the son of Sariah, the high priest. So, But he's never been able to officiate because he, of course, went into captivity. And if you remember Ezekiel, the same thing. He was within the priestly line, but he couldn't officiate because he went into captivity. But yet called, God called him to be a prophet. And he put Daniel in Shushan, the palace. And he put Ezekiel, the prophet, with the people of God. And he worked it all together. God doing his work. Now, the third is the remnant here, the people, in verse 2. And they were the Jews who had returned from Babylon, um, the captivity, by the decree of Cyrus. And again, that's a fulfillment of God's prophecies. You find it at the end of Chronicles. You find it in the, in, in, um, the book of Ezra. And uh, it's confirmed through history. Um, some were old and had seen the temple of Solomon that had been destroyed. 
Others were young and they were born in captivity, so they never had anything to physically remind them in their mind. They just heard of the stories and, and the tradition that was passed down. Uh, some of you, um, perhaps your parents came from other countries and they told you about things and you were born here. And, and all you do is you have the stories while they had the real picture. They were there. And, 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 and that's kind of the thing that went on. Now, the remnant were there to repatriate the nation fulfilling the prophecies of God. This was not a, a human effort, but it was a divine direction. The national life of Israel centered on the temple, the house of God. Um, the sacrifices to atone for their sins, to be in fellowship with God. The worship of God for His holiness, His loving kindness, His faithfulness to His word for who He was. And so there, they had been 70 years being chastened by God. And yet, all these people were now being directly sp spoken to by God. I think of Jeremiah, the prophet, as God called him. And he says, I'm but a babe, I cannot speak. And God says, I've made you an iron pillar, a brazen wall. Uh, don't be dismayed before the faces as I confound you. You speak. And when Jeremiah said, I'm but a babe, God said in Jeremiah 1.5, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you as a prophet to the nations, plural. Amazing. Do you remember when God spoke to you about your lost condition and the need to be saved? The date, the place, the location... Perhaps even um, the person that God used, or maybe you don't remember the person at all, but, but there's certain details that, 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 that should stand out in your mind, that what God did uh, in that day and how He did that. The things that God forgave you for, the things that He delivered you from and set you free as you can look back and you realize the mercy and the grace of God to bring you out. Um, Isaiah 43:25 says, I, even I, uh, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Amazing. The psalmist says, Lord, remember not the sins of my youth. And the psalmist casts himself off upon him, David, upon God. Can you recall when God spoke to you personally? Very clear about something as you walk with God. Write these things down. The older I get, the less I depend on my mind. Write things down. I get a thought and if I don't grab it, it's gone. Sometimes I can nab it when it comes back. Sometimes it's just gone altogether. He dealt with your attitude. Perhaps uh, reproving you for your disobedience to the word. You remember these things. You mark them down to direct you to speak to somebody about Christ. And maybe you were obedient. Maybe you were reluctant. And so God got somebody else to do it. And they came to the Lord and said, oh, I should have done it. Mark it down. To commend you for your love and your faithfulness for him and the people of God. As you sit waiting upon him and reading. 
to comfort you in your difficulties and in your sufferings. Can you remember these things? Because if you don't write them down, if you don't remember these things, you'll get to a place you say, well, did, what, what, did really God speak to me? And we, we start doubting. Jeremiah 33, 3 says, Call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. I remember that sermon. Things that we have no idea about. God wants to do so many things and, and the things that he will do in your life five years from now, two years from now, ten years from now, if the Lord tarries, will blow your mind. But you have no idea right now. None whatsoever. Have you heard the voice of God for your service? How about the church you attend? Are you going there because you chose or because God directed you? Are you there because of the pastor or because God sent you? Very, very important. The particular ministry in your serve. The gifts that he's given to you. All of that's so important. Romans um, 12, 3 through 5 says, For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than the other thing, but to think soberly, clear-headed, level-headed. As God has dealt to each one the measure of faith, for as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. The illustration of the body is just so vivid and so clear and so simple that every generation should get it, but we miss it. This hand has never served itself. Every part of my body is ordered by the head, not the reverse. And so the same with Christ. Christ is the head. We are members. We don't compare ourselves among ourselves. We don't compete with each other. We just do what God has called us to do, and then he puts it all together. And so the directive regarding the proclamation was to the people of God. Very clear. Now notice secondly, in verse 3 through 5, we get the perspective regarding the exhortation. In verse 3, God wanted the people to mark the reality of the present in contrast to the past. Verse 3, God doesn't want you to live in some false reality. God will have you and help you confront the reality. Today, one of the problems of our nation is we're living in a false sense of truth. And people are living this thing that's not reality. We have it with, with, with Facebook. You know, everybody's this and that. And even pastors jump on it. You know, here I am running. Another big. Who cares where you're running? Turn it off. Who cares about you? Amazing. Everybody has their own reality show. Now notice the first question God asked through his prophet Haggai concerned those who had been alive in Jerusalem before the captivity. Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? The number had to have been small. The year right now is 520. If they had gone into captivity in 606, the first one, they would be in their late 70s, close to their 80s. If they were carried off in the second siege in 596 B.C., they would be in their late 60s or 70s. If they went into captivity in that third siege of 586, they would be in their late 50s or 60s. 
There's 20 years before the, between the first and the third siege. But these older people would have seen the incredible beauty, the opulence of wealth that went into the construction of Solomon's temple. Incredible wealth. The gold, the silver, the brass, the precious stones, the jewel, the fine um, woodwork, the craftsmanship that Hiram and his men were commissioned to do. The way they built it with the different groups going away for certain months and coming back home being certain I mean, just the organization, everything is incredible. In 1 Kings 5 and 6, it gives you all the wealth and everything within the temple. David put much of that away. Gold, silver, brass, everything. In fact, the words of the queen of Sheba to Solomon, as she observed all the things, not only the temple, but how God had blessed them, she said in 1 Kings 10, 6-7, Then she said to the king, It was a true report which I heard in my own land about uh, your words and your wisdom. However, I did not believe the words until I came and I saw with my own eyes, and indeed the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity exceed the fame of which I heard. Notice the second question. It's a rhetorical question. And how do you see it now? Now, they, 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 they saw it. Now there's a comparison here. The reality of the condition of the temple had only one correct answer. Terrible, meager, deplorable to these old people. There's no comparison. Remember, the altar had been set up at the Feast of Tabernacles, was observed in the seventh month, Ezra chapter 3, 1 through 7 tells us. They built booths, they made sacrifices. They appointed the Levites, the foundation of the temple was finished, and they worshipped there in Ezra chapter 3, 8 through 13. All worked together, all responded. The older men, says, wept over the inferior glory of the previous temple, but the younger men rejoiced. Here's the contrast. You see, when you've seen something and then you compare it, the older people are going to respond differently than the younger people. Now here's the lesson. These are rhetorical questions that teach them. God didn't want them to lie and say, oh, it's beautiful. No, I want you to live in reality. But God was about to do a new work. So I have to be careful that I don't despise the things that God is doing now because I'm always looking to the past. Notice the third is not a question, but it answers the second question. In comparison with it, with the Temple of Solomon, is this not in your eyes as nothing? He confirms the second thing. The caution is that those who have had better days in the past can despise the work of God in the present. Those same people can become a hindrance to the new work God is desiring to do. The past only helps me to understand that God has worked and he will continue to work. But the past can't tell me how he's going to work or when he's going to work. But it does tell me that he will work again. But I can't compare the two. 
Because I cannot despise the day of small things in the past, nor the ones in the present. Because whatever God is doing, that's the best thing for today. The best day of my life is today. Because it's the next day. You understand? Tomorrow, yesterday's gone. Tomorrow I'm looking forward to. Notice in verse 4. God wanted the people to depend on him in the present in contrast to the past. God commanded Zerubbabel first. Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord. Yet now. Despite the reality that the present temple is nothing compared to the former temple, be strong. It's a command, not a suggestion. To be firm and courageous. The work would be hard and long. Zerubbabel was the governor. And his example was imperative for the people as a leader depending on God. To get the work done that God said he was going to do. To trust God for the provisions and the protection during this work. Read Ezra, read Nehemiah. How God protected him, all the things he did. Those aren't there just for bedtime stories. Those are there to remind you what God wants to do in your life and does do when you are so ignorant as well as myself at times. God then commanded Joshua the same thing. And be strong, Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Joshua needed to be firm, courageous. Rubabel, the line of the king. Joshua, the high priest. As the high priest, he was the one who brought the people to God. He was the go-between, the mediator. He needed to be right with God first. He needed to obey him. The authority is identical the covenant God who would fulfill this. He would be faithful. Notice God's last command is to the remnant of the people. And be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord. Three times he says it. He, he goes out of his way to separate the people and repeat the same thing. Do you think that God just wanted to give us a fat book to read? I don't think so. He does creation in two chapters. If God was a scientist, he would have made a hundred volumes. He's not trying to impress us. He chooses specific things to teach us. The land and the people, listen to me carefully. The land and the people always go together. They are never separated. The constant attempt to make a two-state of Israel is unbiblical. And whoever tries, fights against God. Read Obadiah, for, just for a sample. <laughs> One chapter. It'll never happen. There's never been a people, a race, or a nation that has existed without a homeland for more than three generations before being absorbed and totally lost. The Jews did it for 2,000 years. How? God. When you look at Israel, you can only have one answer. God. May 14, 1948. The authority was still the same. The covenant God. Yahweh. Notice God gave a second command. And work. For I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. The work involved the house of God. The temple. 
the very heart of the center of the nation. You remember the tabernacle, that the, the heart of the tabernacle was in the middle, and then all the tribes would, 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 would be stationed around the perimeter. And they would break camp in certain ways, but the heart was the, the, the tabernacle. The word work means assemble, fashion, out of existing material. It's one of the three words that God uses in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 for the creation. First, he created bara out of nothing. Then he fashioned this word asa. And then he used the third word for to build. But he first created everything out of nothing. This is one of the three words. Now, the greatest comfort and encouragement was uttered. Listen very carefully. I am with you. Now, if you're a parent, you know what a comfort that is to your child in the middle of the night when they're sick or scared, right? They're freaked out. All of a sudden you say the words, okay, I'm good. We're just the same. That's why it's important that your ear be tuned to God. No one can hear God for you. You have to hear God. The assured protection for them was given. Says the Lord of hosts. All capital letters, the covenant of God still. But hosts means the captain of the armies of heaven. There's the protection. The phrase appears 14 times in the book. Two chapters, 38 verses. Do the math. Man, there is a great army in this book. <laughs> Notice God wanted the people to live as the covenant people in the present, as they had in the past. Verse 5. All God was declaring by and through Haggai was that he had promised this in his word. He's not giving them anything different. Listen to the words. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. God is just reminding them of what he had promised them. God can't lie. When God delivered the nation of Israel from the bondage of Egypt, he laid it all out. He made a covenant with them in Mount Sinai. The two tablets of stone and all those statues, all the laws, all the things. God stipulated blessings and cursings that he would bring upon them if they obeyed or disobeyed. Whenever you have God's judgment on people in the restoration in the Old Testament, always go to Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 27 and 28. That's the blessings and the cursings. And by the way, he keeps his word. He says, I will bless you or I will chase you and persecute you. Wow. He put him in captivity. The judgment of God was behind them now. Listen. So my spirit remains among you. God is encouraging them. The chastening is over. He's doing a new work. The Shekinah glory had departed from Jerusalem in the temple, as you know, when Ezekiel wrote in Ezekiel eleven twenty three, It just went away because of all the sin, all the idolatry and all. Now God's spirit remained among them. He was there. In the midst of whatever you're in, God is with you if you're walking with him. He, the valley of the shadow of death, thou fear no evil. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. Fear results in a lack of faith. 
And fear paralyzes us to do nothing for God. It cripples us. Just like Peter trusted Jesus to walk on the water. He says, Lord, bid me to come to you. He says, come. And he walked. But then he got his eyes off the Lord. He looked upon the storm. And that said, Lord, save me. That, that, that's, that occasion isn't there for me to criticize. It's for me to realize I'm just like Peter. If I get my eyes off the Lord, same exact thing. Maybe you have um, seen better days in your Christian life. And the reality is that it doesn't look that good right now. But God wants you to trust in him. Even in your discouraged condition. As you walk by faith, not by sight, not by emotions. It could be a rocky marriage. It could be a rebellious a wayward son or daughter. Could be your mate that has been unfaithful. You fill in the blank. It's not impossible for God to work on your behalf. Uh, we've seen so many incredible things through the years. Then we've also seen things that people refuse to obey. So God doesn't force us. But if we will yield and trust Him for it, it's amazing the beauty he can make out of ashes. It's amazing. Jeremiah thirty-two twenty-seven. You remember God told Jeremiah that he was going to put him in captivity and he was going to bring him back. And Jeremiah believed God, but then he got thrown in jail and then he's doubting in jail. And God speaks to Jeremiah in Jeremiah there thirty-two twenty-seven. 27. Um, and he says, um, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? It's a rhetorical question. There's only one answer that's correct. No. If you say yes, you just flunk the Bible. Maybe you're in the very situation because you have not trusted God. But in yourself... And you really have brought much of this upon yourself, the trouble and difficulty. We're knuckleheads at times. But God is merciful. He's gracious. God would have you to acknowledge and confess your sin. Then God would have you to trust him. To guide you. To direct you. To speak to you through his word and prayer. Not your emotions. Not your feelings. Not what other people tell you. God would have you to serve him. So you can stay close to him. I think one of the failures of many Christians is that when things start going wrong or whatever it is. They think that they should just do nothing. Listen. You fix things while you're running. You don't. Sit down. You're an easy target for the enemy. You fix things while you're running. You put on your armor. You pick up your sword. And you go to town. And you go forward. Psalm 79, 8 and 9 says, Oh, do not remember former iniquities against us. Let your tender mercies come speedily to meet us, for we have been brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name 
and deliver us and provide atonement for our sins for your name's sake. God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 The propitiation for our sins and not ours alone but the whole world. 1 John 2.2 2. Wow. God would have each of us to walk in the new covenant of the spirit. That we walk in the spirit that we not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Galatians 5.16 That we... Be led of the Spirit, Galatians 5.18. That we bear the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22. That we live in the Spirit, Galatians 5.25. That we sow to the Spirit and not the flesh, Galatians 6.8. That we not grieve the Spirit in Ephesians 4.30. That we be constantly being filled with the Spirit of God, Ephesians 5.18. That we pray in the Spirit, Ephesians 6.18. And many, many other things of the Spirit. Paul the Apostle, as he is getting ready to lose his head and to go to heaven. This is what he tells Timothy who has left at Ephesus as the pastor. Listen carefully. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. Now you want to listen to this guy. He's going to lose his head shortly. He's not at the Marriott. He's not at Dunkin' Donuts. And he's leaving some very important counsel to this young minister. A guy like this, he's speaking from experience and relationship. Trusting God, not himself. And so the perspective regarding the exhortation was to trust God. Thirdly comes the perceptive regarding the revelation, verse 6 through 9. Notice in verse 6, God pro projected from the present to the future and times now. All of a sudden, he just goes to the future. The one speaking is once again the captain of the armies of heaven, for thus saith the Lord of hosts. He has never been intimidated or defeated, by the way. Not by a person, not by a nation, not by any army. He confounded the language of the Tower of Babel and dispersed the people throughout the earth. He defeated Egypt by judging their gods, revealing that there were no gods at all. He defeated the innumerable Midianites through Gideon and his 300 strong. He sent one angel one night to wipe out 250,000 frontline Assyrian troops. One angel. You see the text in Haggai here is referring to the shaking that will take place during the tribulation and great tribulation. Listen to the words. Once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land. Now, the book of Hebrews quotes this but refers to the shaking of Mount Sinai when God spoke in Hebrews 12, 26. When he quotes this. But the very next verse of Hebrews 12, verse 27, mentions the shaking that Haggai speaks about. 
Listen, now this yet once more indicates the removal of all those things that are being shaken as of things that are made that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. There's a big shaking coming soon to this world such as never before. The book of Revelation reveals some of the quakings during what's known as Jacob's trouble, the seven years of tribulation. Revelation six twelve through 13 says, I look when uh, he opened up the sixth seal and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair and the moon became like blood and the stars of the heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Revelation 8, 5. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar and threw it into the earth and there were noises, thundering, lightnings and an earthquake. In Revelations eleven thirteen, in the same hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell, Jerusalem. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. One more, Revelation 16, 18 through 20, just in case you're going to be around. And there were noises. Thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such as mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. This is worse than the San Andreas Falls, ladies and gentlemen. Now the great city was divided into three parts, Jerusalem. And the cities, plural, of the nations fell. And great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of wine of the fierceness of her wrath. Then every island fled away and the mountains were not found. This is the big one. God's judgment will fall upon this world, ladies and gentlemen. The global citizenship will be able to do nothing against God. Look at verse 7. God revealed the glory of the future millennial temple. Now he's gone to the future. Tribulation, great tribulation. Now he moves into the millennial kingdom. Haggai refers to the second coming here at the end of the seven years first. And I will shake all nations. There's the key. The prophetic preview is given to us in Psalm 2. Listen to, to Psalm 2, verse 1 to 6. Um, it says, Why do the nations rage? And the people plot a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break the bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. And then it responds says, he, meaning Jesus, who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet, I have set my king on my holy hill, Zion. That's the preview of the second coming in Psalm 2. You know how it ends? Kiss the son, lest he be angry with you. All of us who are ex-Catholics know exactly what that means. We worship our scapular, our rosary, our Bible, our saint, whatever we trust in on, right? Idolatrous. So you want to kiss somebody? You kiss the son. Wow. This describes the battle of Armageddon as the nations 
are gathered in an attempt to stop Jesus from setting up the kingdom. The world's real serious against God. Listen carefully. This is the actual account in Revelation 19, 15 through 19. Now out of the mouth, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron, he himself treads the winepress, the fierceness of the wrath of God Almighty, and he has on his robe and on his right on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw the an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds of the that fly in the midst of heaven. Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him, Jesus, who sat on the horse and against his army. The battle of Armageddon, where he destroys the armies of the world, ladies and gentlemen. Haggai described the future opulence next of wealth to be in the kingdom temple. Listen to the words. And they shall come to the desire of all nations and I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Now, the desire of all nations has been interpreted by the Jewish tradition as it being Messiah. And many have accepted this interpretation. But the Messiah has never really been the desire of all nations. Not in the past, not in the present, and it's not even going to be the desire in the millennial. The millennial, there's still sin, there's still rebellion. Okay? He forces them to come to Jerusalem once a year for the Feast of Tabernacles or they get no rain. <laughs> Others interpret this desire of the nations to refer to the next verse. The silver, the gold that belongs to God. J. Vernon McGee, the late J. Vernon McGee is one of them and many others. Now, stop and think of the context. It's important. He's talking about the glory of the present temple Zerubbabel. None. Compared to Solomon's, great. What are we talking about here? The opulence, the glory. So I think that this might be the better interpretation. I give you both. One's not going to send you to hell or heaven. Okay, I give you both, but I think the, the, what verse 9 is, is what he's talking about. What is it that men desire after all the time? Silver and gold, they kill, they betray, they do whatever, right? God doesn't care about this stuff. He owns a cattle on every hill. The inferior glory in Zerubbabel's time was lacking the opulence of gold and silver. Here you have the future. Temple in the millennium. Haggai declared what God was going to do in that day. Listen. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Jesus will be the very glory of the millennial temple. Ruling and reigning. Jesus will rule with the rod of iron, the captain of the armies of heaven. Nobody will get away with anything. Notice Haggai declared... The true owner of all wealth. Silver is mine. The gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. He guards his own wealth. <laughs> Fort Knox has nothing on him. There's nothing there anymore anyway. So, Except uh, notes of debt. To God it was just building material. Listen to Revelation 21, 21. 
about Jerusalem. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. That's a small pearl, huh? Each individual gate was one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. God just paves the street with gold. No big deal. Look at verse 9. God interpreted the millennial temple to be, listen, the superior glory. He takes them from the past glory to the present lack of glory to the future glory. The final temple of the kingdom age will excel all past glories of the previous temples, plural. The glory of this latter temple shall be the greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. They saw the glory of Solomon's temple. They saw the diminished glory of the foundation temple here of Zerubbabel and Joshua. But the temple would be beautified. This temple of Zerubbabel would be beautified and enlarged by Herod. And the superior glory in that temple, which is still the second temple. Solomon's first temple, Zerubbabel's second temple. Herod's is still the second temple. He just expanded it, okay? Beautified. A superior glory would be in that temple. Jesus Christ, God incarnate, would walk in it. Be dedicated there. Turn over the, tem- the temple tables and, and, and kick all the thieves out. <laughs> A superior glory. Oh, that God would rent the heavens, Isaiah says. God says, little bit, I'll be down there in about 700 years. And he came down. Wow. The temple of the kingdom will have Jesus the Messiah reign in Jerusalem. And the nations will have to come every year for the Feast of Tabernacles, I said. Listen to Zechariah. He says, and it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. So much for the desire of the nations being the Messiah and the kingdom age. No way. There's still sin. There's still rebellion. We're glorified. But the people that entered in, they still have sin nature. Notice the location. The location will be Jerusalem. And in this place, I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. Jerusalem means teaching of peace. Every act of disobedience will be dealt with Swiftly and speedily. Noah believed God for rain. Yet it had never rained. All right, God, I don't know what you're talking about, but I guess I'll know when it comes. Wow. How long did he believe? 120 years. Jesus is coming for his church, ladies and gentlemen, first. Then he will come back with his church to set up the kingdom. Are you looking for Jesus Christ? Are you waiting to be caught up in the air to be with the Lord? I hope so. Luke twenty-one thirty-six. Jesus says, Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Escape all these things, the great tribulation. The millennial temple is given in detail, as you know, in Ezekiel chapter 40 to 48. The introductory statement of the vision of the temple is given in chapter 40, verse 1 through 4. The temple is described as an enclosed area in chapter 40, verse 5 through 27. Then there is the inner court where the priest minister in the altar in chapter 40, verse 28 through 47. Then the temple proper itself is described in 
40, verse 48, down to chapter 42, verse 20. The glory of Yahweh returns to the temple in chapter 43, verse 1 through 12. The furnishings and the regulations of the worship are described in Ezekiel 43, verse 13, to chapter 47, verse 12. The new tribe divisions in the city of God declared in 47, verse 13 to 48. The boundaries of the seven north tribes is given in chapter 48, 1 through 7. And the central portion of the land is given in 48, verse 8, down to 20. And the portions of the land for the prince in chapter 48, 21 through 22. And the boundaries of the five southern tribes is given in 48, 23 through 29. And then the gates of the city in 48, 30 to 35. Very specific, very detailed. But it's the millennial temple. There's only been two temples, Solomon and Zerubbabel's. Herod's is not a third. Do not count the temple of the Antichrist. That's not God's. He declares himself God and he blasphemes God. The abomination of the desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet in Matthew 24, 15. The city of Jerusalem will be the central city. Jerusalem will be the center of the millennial earth, whether people like it or not. It may be the, um, the capital pretty soon where our embassy will be. Jerusalem will be the center of the kingdom rule. Jerusalem will be the glorious city that will bring honor to Yahweh. Jerusalem will be protected by the king. Jerusalem will be enlarged over its former area. Right now, the temple could not fit there. Read the dimensions. When Jesus comes, he steps on the Mount of Olives, it splits in two. A water source comes out of the temple from Jerusalem there, goes to the Dead Sea to revive the Dead Sea, and the rest goes to the Mediterranean. That whole topography is going to be changed for the temple to fit. He's going to remodel the whole place. Jerusalem will be greatly enlarged then from its former area. Jerusalem will be accessible to all who seek the king. Jerusalem will be the center of the worship of God. Through Jesus Christ and Jerusalem will endure, listen, forever. Do you realize there's not one Muslim map that has Israel on their maps, let alone Jerusalem as its capital? God says, I don't really care. Jerusalem is my city. And it's going to be the capital of the world for a thousand years. Wow. We have such incredible information, ladies and gentlemen, that it just blows my mind. <laughs> the perceptive regarding the revelation was to believe the word of God. I don't know. Just believe it. And walk with God. God encouraged the remnant in the work of the temple. It has unfolded for us here in these threefold steps. The directive regarding the proclamation to the people of God. The perspective regarding the exhortation was to trust God. The perceptive regarding the revelation was to believe in the word of God. How are we doing? Practical stuff that God gives in difficult times. Listen, life is made of blood and guts. <laughs> Not a sanitary laboratory. <laughs> Welcome to the club.
May God give us wisdom. Lord, thank you for your love, your goodness. Deal with our hearts. We thank you for this message. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace over our life. I pray for the needs of the people. I pray for those that are hearing that do not know you, hear the radio or the internet. Lord, that you would speak to them and Lord, that they would call on your name. If you're here, if you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you can call upon his name right now. Repent of your sins. He will forgive you and give you eternal life. This is your prayer to him. Lord, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.